Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Happy New Year and welcome to episode 185. Today we are continuing our tradition of a New Year predictions panel. And we have some top quality thinking about that from people who spend their professional time working in the field. So I'll let them introduce themselves as we get right into it. All right, well, I'm here with Justin Grammons and Callum Chase for our beginning of 2024 prediction show, coming to be an annual tradition here. And I'd like to start by asking each of them to introduce themselves. And we've had some associations before, but that's why they're here. And Justin, I'll start with you, ask you for an uh, introduction to our audience. Sure. Thank you so much, Peter. I appreciate the opportunity to be on this show, kind of looking into a crystal ball and trying to predict what's going to happen in the next 12 months, knowing full well what just happened at OpenAI recently and things changing within with Sam Altman's ousting and then bringing back, things can change within the matter of 24 hours. So it's going to be fun for us to sort of cast the net forward and see how well we do. But this is a fun landscape. So thank you for, again, for being on this, for allowing me to be on your program here. My name is Justin Grammons. I am in St. Paul, Minnesota. I have a software consulting company called Lab 651. 651 is the area code of St. Paul. So that's where that name came from. But I also have a strategic consulting company called Recursive Awesome, where I go in and talk with organizations on how they can bring artificial intelligence into their organization to provide efficiency and automation. So I've had a chance to meet with companies of all sizes to sort of figure out how we can, at the beginning step, kind of take a look at their data, but then also bring in artificial intelligence. I also am running a 501c3 nonprofit called Applied AI, which is here in Minnesota. And we do conferences, we do monthly meetups, we do hackathon events, and we also do a podcast. So it's called Conversations on Applied AI, and I've been running that since 2020. And so I've had a chance to interview a number of people, including you, Peter, on the program. And so, yeah, it gives me a really, really great opportunity to talk with some really awesome thought leaders, not only in the Twin Cities, but also across the world. And I also teach at a local university here in the Twin Cities, University of St. Thomas, and I teach a class on artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things sort of the intersection of those two worlds. So it's been a lot of fun teaching students since 2015 about sort of the power of machine learning and AI. Fantastic. Thank you, Justin. And coming from a place meteorologically quite different from Minnesota, Callum Chase. Hi, Peter, Justin. Happy New Year and Happy New Year to all the audience. And Justin, just listening to the things you do has made me quite exhausted. I don't know how you find time to do all that in a day. I don't sleep much. <laughs> well, you know, you should uh, start sleeping more because it's one of the most important things for keeping healthy. <laughs> and if you want to live long enough to live forever, you've got to get your sleep. So I spent about 30 years in business and journalism, mostly in strategy consulting, ended up as a CEO of a green tech startup turnaround thing. And then I retired in 2011 and was able to spend a lot of time reading and writing about AI, which was just becoming of interest to a lot of people with the first big bang in AI in 2012, the arrival of deep learning. Uh, since then, I've written about four books on AI, two fiction, two nonfiction, written a lot of articles, run a podcast. And the thing I enjoy most, actually, is giving keynote talks around the world. It's great fun. 
and just fascinated by where this AI thing is taking us. Well, thank you very much. And you've been on the show before, of course, and I'm a big fan of the London Futurist podcast, which you co-anchor with David Wood, who was coincidentally on this very predictions show one year ago. So let's get going. And maybe the best place to start is to think back over what a year it has been. One year ago, ChatGPT had just landed. We were getting an idea of how big that was. And yet it has taken off in so many ways that I think we weren't predicting at the time. And one of those was, to me, the way that the public narrative and messaging around the threat of AI that it can pose evolved with the public letters calling for a pause in large language model training and then the other one saying that AI posed an existential threat comparing it to nuclear weapons. And those were signed by people who are not only luminaries in the field who have impeccable credentials, but even the ones that are actually trying to build the very AI that these messages are talking about. And it really shifted that whole conversation about the threat from being largely fringe with a, a few people that had some unquestionable credentials to something that was getting a lot of attention and prompted things like the AI Safety Summit in the UK and others. So how did, first of all, that evolution strike you over the last year? And then where do you think that's likely to go in the coming year? I can give it a shot. Well, I guess rewinding the clock back to, you know, November of last year, 2022, I guess that would be, right? It's the one of the powerful things I think that we were able to see was anybody could get online and start interfacing with these things, right? And it's not to say that GPTs weren't out there before, right? This was the third iteration. There were many, many other ones that were there. In fact, I even interviewed a couple people on my shows back in 2020 that were using some of the early ones, right? And they were a little bit clunky. And I think what kind of what changed was, was anybody could log in and start seeing the power of these. And they had gotten to a certain point where people took it to an extreme, right? They started saying, look, HDI is here today, right? <laughs> and if you kind of went under, if you kind of dug in a little bit deeper, it's like, no, 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 there's a lot of things that this system doesn't really understand. But media loves to hop on top of these things, right? They love to sensationalize what the power and the capabilities were. And I think the conversation turned, unfortunately, towards it's going to take my job, right? And I think the needle has gone way too far that way. This year, and probably even more and more, I think we're going to start seeing more and more cracks. But I think over the past year, there's a lot of fear around this AI is going to take over everything that I do. I personally think it was a little bit unwarranted. I think there was a huge hype storm that came up. People found little examples of where, wow, this is doing stuff a lot better than humans can do. And computers can do things better than humans can do. There's a lot of things that computers can do better than humans. And it turns out that generative AI, it can actually generate text that is in some ways better than what humans can do. But I think the point of it is what our jobs and our lives and what we do day to day isn't just all about just generative AI, right? And there's a lot more aspects of what we do and being able to stitch together systems that I think AI still has a long way to go from. I forget what the initial question was, but what I think has kind of happened is, is there's a lot of hoopla around policies and legal questions that still have yet to be defined. And if you would say a year ago, we'd be having these conversations, probably no one would have guessed that we would be taking a look at just how realistic a lot of these images that are being generated from and who owns the copyright 
and a lot of the biases that are in this stuff, a lot of this stuff has just been uncovered over the past year. But I think anytime you have a story and a story as big as this, when it's a public place for people just to go to OpenAI, ChatGPT, and start typing in stuff and getting what are actually pretty good answers, you're going to have a lot of media storm around it. Well, you've just checked about five of the boxes on my topics to discuss here. I'm going to put those on a hook for later and ask Callum your take on the way the the narrative about the impact of artificial intelligence has hit us over the last year and how you could see that evolving. I think there's no doubt this has been the second great robot freakout. The first one was in 2015 when people had seen the DeepMind video in which a system became superhuman at playing uh, an Atari video game and invented a way of winning the game that the inventors or the developers had not actually seen before. And so 2015 was the first great robot freakout, and this year has been the second one. And I think with very good reason. The launch of GPT-4, when Greg Brockman posted that video online in March, was really a shocking moment. It was quite astonishing and remains astonishing what GPT-4 is capable of. And I think it's a very good thing that people are nervous about it, thinking about it a lot, worrying about it. I think not nearly enough people are in that bucket, but political leaders are. And one of the great things in the year was the Bletchley Park Summit, which is very possibly the only worthwhile thing that Rishi Sunak, our prime minister, will do in his entire tenure. It has been the catalyst for world political leaders to talk about existential risk and talk about the long-term prospects of AI. It's been a long time coming. It should have happened before. I used to think it would be self-driving cars that woke everybody up, but it turns out it was large language models. Now, of course, the hype is overstating the present capabilities of these systems. They are really impressive. In some ways, GPT-4 is like having a free, freshly minted graduate for $20 a month. It's that good. It makes a lot of mistakes, but it's incredibly quick and it's pretty capable. But it's nowhere near human level yet. And we don't know how long it will take to get to human level. We don't even really know for absolutely certain that it will, but I mean, it seems extraordinarily unlikely that it won't. But it's now is the time for us to be thinking about the, the longer term implications of AI as well as the shorter term implications. So it's been an absolutely roller coaster year. Remarkable stuff. Yeah. And when you talk about it reaching human level, I think that's one of the things that we really need to develop is the ways to measure this. Because whenever you look at any sort of standardized test that's been developed to measure intelligence, reasoning capability, or so forth, GPT-4 and its companions score really high on them. And that's because they're optimized for scoring really high on standardized tests. And yet, as you and I and anyone who uses these things know, there are gaping holes in their ability to do things that are hard to describe in general terms. And as soon as you try and create a instrument to measure that, it becomes something that is narrow enough for it to pass those tests really well. Um, I just had incident the other day where I tried to play Wordle with it and it swore up and down that it knew exactly how to play it and it was terrible. <laughs> but good luck trying to make a test that encompasses that, that is anything that anyone would want to sign their name at the top of a research paper to. Of course, the last year has seen OpenAI, a company that no one outside of us and our penumbra had heard of before, vaulted into public attention 
and ChatGPT appearing as a catchphrase on South Park. You can't get any more mainstream than that. And all the other companies have been playing catch up. I mean, if before 15 months ago, if we'd said who was going to do this kind of breakout, I think we would have said DeepMind, right? Where do you think the competition, Google and Microsoft and so forth, Facebook, Amazon, for heaven's sake, yeah. is going to go? What do you see happening? Well, I think competition is going to be fierce, right? We're already seeing companies drop billions and billions of dollars into making these models. Google just released their Gemini, right, just recently, last week. And in fact, today it's available in their Google AI workspace now. As a developer now, you can start actually interfacing with it. So I'm excited to start playing around with it. And the whole idea around that is the videos that they were showing were pretty awesome, right? Multimodal type solutions actually be seems to be reasoning, like you kind of draw a picture of a duck, it says, I think I see a duck, right? It's very, very impressive. And this whole idea, these huge, huge language models that are multimodal, I think are interesting, but I actually think more narrowly focused models under specific domains are actually going to be the ones that are going to win out in the end. I might be going against, you know, a tradition here, but this idea that we would create this huge, large language model with trillions and trillions of parameters, which I think I thought I heard that Sam Oldman said something like the parameter training isn't actually going to get much better. So, you know, the intelligence levels would get much better based on the number of parameters. It's really going to be around the human reinforcement side of it. But I think the future will drive more towards specific models that are really, really good at one thing in particular. People will continue to spend a lot of time and money and effort on creating this sort of AGI thing. But I think where the rubber is going to meet the road and where businesses are going to succeed and actually find true value in what they're doing in the next year is actually creating smaller models that are very, very highly tuned to a specific industry and can actually deal with this problem of hallucinations, right? That actually will give to deterministic results in some ways based on knowledge that they've been trained that is a smaller subset. So I see a lot of money being dumped in by all these companies. I saw that Amazon released their thing, the other, what is it, Q, I think? Amazon Q or something. And, uh, you know, there was a write-up about it and it was just meh. Same thing with Elon Musk's X thing. I think there's just going to be a lot of these companies that are just going to sort of get in the space to get into the space, but not actually do much with regards to innovate in the next year. Yeah, I think the leading companies will all have models which are fairly similar capability. I use GPT-4 as my main model, but I also benchmark it against BARD and Perplexity and Pi from Inflection. And they're all good, but GPT-4 still better at the moment. And I think they'll probably jostle for position for the kind of the base model, and that'll be where most consumers are playing. And as you said, Justin, I think that more and more we'll see models being tailored for enterprises. And I think one of the things that will happen next year, which will be important, is enterprises will shed their reluctance to let their employees use these systems. Lots of employees are on the quiet. They're generally discouraged from and often banned from using them by their companies, which are perfectly reasonably worried about their data leaking and they're worried about the hallucination problem. Those problems will be overcome to a greater or lesser extent. And I think the companies which do really well there will be the companies which are good at dealing with enterprises, which is primarily Microsoft and a sort of outsider, an outside rail entrant IBM, which is traditionally very good at dealing with enterprises. In recent years, has been disappointing, should we say, on the mm -hmm. AI front. And okay. I think they will probably come back from that somewhat. And Google, because they've got enormous cloud resource as well. And I wouldn't write off Amazon as well to help companies use generative AI. So I think one of the big trends next year will be the 
deployment of generative AI across enterprise. Mm. And when you mentioned those, it's been a surprise to me that my Amazon Echo device and my Apple Siri have not been integrated yet with large language models to the degree that one would think that they could do within a week if they wanted to. And there must be a good reason for not doing that, but it eludes me. In with respect to what you were just talking about there, I noted a quote recently from Eric Brynjolfsson, who is predicting for 2024, quote, I expect mass adoption by companies that will start delivering some of the productivity benefits that we've been hoping for for a long time. It's going to affect knowledge workers, people who have been largely spared by a lot of the computer revolution in the past 30 years, creative workers, lawyers, finance professors, and more are going to see their jobs change quite a bit this year, end quote. And that overlaps with some of what you were just saying. Uh, it also overlaps with the question of copyright, which we have seen explode in multiple directions over the last year. How would you think that some of the copyright questions might be resolved or tackled over the coming year? Good question. What I was thinking about as you were sort of talking about copyrights is, you know, the analogy that pops in my head is open source software. So my world is largely my career been around software development, right? So I sort of deal in code. <laughs> I don't write a whole lot of legal briefs. I'm writing, you know, throughout my career, I don't write a whole lot of marketing material, but my world sort of deals in code. And what's been interesting about open source, the open source movement, I guess, is I think it's taken a long time, 20 plus years or more here for us to sort of get to a point where it's sort of accepted that within organizations, they're like, okay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to use open source software. Probably 15 years ago, I worked for a large enterprise company and they were very, very against us using open source software. And we needed to go through line by line and make sure that we weren't using something that was out of the public domain because there was this fear that we were going to get sued, that buried in one of the licenses somewhere that we were going to actually going to have to pay money to somebody who created this. And so I think it can take decades for, for us, again, I mean, in the software world, but it's going to take some time, I think, for us to be able to have companies realize that going back to your original quote around the productivity side of it, that it really, really helps your company out from a productivity standpoint. There is true money to be made if you use open source software. And I've been using Copilot by GitHub to write code here for the past six to nine months or so. And I have found it to be extremely transformative, not only in the code that I can produce, and I've been doing this for 25 years, right? So I can write code. I know how to write code. And I wasn't really even so much impressed by the code quality of what it wrote. I think it was fine, but I was able to use it as another tool in my arsenal to ask it questions, right? Hey, I wrote some code here. What do you think about this? Rather than having it generate a lot of stuff or explain to me a little bit how this code works, right? Maybe I'll come across someone else's code and then say, you know, what, what exactly is going on here? So I'm able to ingest a lot of information and be able to process it still bringing human into the loop, right? I don't subscribe that we're just going to push a button and a bunch of code is going to be written. It's magically going to work. But I'm able to become a much more effective knowledge worker. And again, I own my own business. And so I have a bunch of engineers here and I'm encouraging them to go ahead and use these tools. But I think it's eventually going to come to the point where kind of coming back to the open source world is companies are going to start to realize and legal teams are going to start to realize, look, we just got to let them use this thing because we're seeing a 10x, 20x, 30x improvement Otherwise, they need to write all this stuff from scratch, and it's going to become more and more just sort of acceptable 
Now, governments take a long time and laws take a long time to get passed. And so that's kind of my thinking is, is in the next year, we're probably going to still see a ton of confusion. I don't see anything a year from now where it's going to be, ta-da, now everyone can understand how we're going to use this generative AI and what the legal ramifications are. But I feel like it might be driven more by economics at the mm. end of the day. Callum, before I ask for your take on this, I got back from speaking at Los Angeles Science Fiction Convention a few weeks ago, and the conversation there was very much about AI in writing screenplays because Hollywood. And there has been a lot of, obviously, the writer's strike, the actor's strike, but there has been a lot of commentary from writers that AI should not be allowed to train on copyright material, or at least not without compensating the authors of that material, which is if you didn't allow generative AI to train itself on copyright material, it would probably not have enough left to do anything like the job that it is doing. And yet, my take on that is that a human being couldn't do a adequate job of writing or creating art if they didn't have copyright material to train themselves on either. And I don't see a whole lot of difference. So I would certainly like this to evolve in the direction that the AI remains unfettered, but that's seen as threatening by a lot of creative types. So uh, maybe this will change. Callum, what are your thoughts on this question? Well, you asked two questions. One is, will we see a great productivity leap? And then how do we deal with the copyright issue? So I certainly wouldn't want to be in a position of disagreeing with the great Eric Brynjolfsson. And I think he's right. I think that we will see improvements in productivity from generative AI, and it should show through in the numbers. I mean, it seems quite likely to me that we'll see significant, noticeable increases in GDP as a result of generative AI over the next couple of years or so. Although it might do the same as computers, which is boost all of our productivity in a way that we absolutely all know that we're more productive, thanks to computers, but you can't see it in the numbers. You can't see it in the economic numbers. Somehow it's not showing up in GDP. We know it's there, but it's not visible. On the copyright issue, I completely agree with you when it comes to words. How on earth do you train a human or a machine, a generative AI machine, other than by giving it all the words that humans have produced in the past? And if it takes all those words and jumbles them up and produces a new form of words, then that's not copyright infringement. And I think what we're going to have to do is allow these systems to be used. And if they end up regurgitating something which is copyright word for word, then they will just be sued under copyright law. And I think the large companies behind the models have often said fairly sensible things like they will indemnify users. Images, interestingly, is probably a bit harder and more obvious at the same time, harder to avoid and more obvious to see it, particularly because you can ask a machine to produce an image in the style of Picasso or in the style of a living artist. And is that copyright infringement? Well, yes, it may well be. And it certainly could damage somebody's income if a machine is just producing loads of images in their style. So I suspect that the legal framework we need is already there and it will be used and the big companies will indemnify users in order to get the ball rolling. Copyright parameters change so much depending on the medium. There's music, which we're starting to see a lot of evolution in, and also song lyrics are this to outsiders strange phenomenon that you cannot quote even a line of lyrics from a song in a book without paying a fee and finding who to pay the fee to is itself a huge challenge or you will risk a lawsuit. And 
the possibility that one of these generative AIs will accidentally spew out something that is a line from a Rolling Stones song somewhere and get caught out seems appreciable. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we've been talking a lot about the social effects here and governments have started to weigh in here. Stuart Russell characterizes this as before this year, the or before last year, the response to the impact of AI was as though aliens had called Earth and said, hey, hello, we're on our way, want to see you. And the response was, hello, you've reached Earth, uh, humanity is out of the office at the moment. And he says that this year, humanity has returned to the office. And we've seen things like the Biden administration's executive order regarding AI and other rumblings of regulation. Do you think that governments are going to introduce regulation in a way that becomes noticeable, like putting up stoplights on roads? Is it going to have an impact or do they just not know what to do? Well, Kellen, I'd like to get your input because I think something just passed in the EU recently, didn't it? Yeah, the EU has just more or less finalized its EU AI Act after two or three years of wrangling. And then the wrangling got more intense in the last month or so because Germany, France, and Italy decided that they didn't really want foundation models to fall within the remit of the act because they had a rush of blood to the head and thought that they were going to create some. And indeed, France has with Mistral and Germany has the Aleph model. They're tiny compared to the big American ones, but let's all hope that they are serious players. Europe should step up. Europe should be involved in this most powerful technology. The compromise that was reached, I think, was fairly sensible. As I understand it, the large language models are within the remit of the act, but open source ones, not so much. And that makes sense to me. I mean, this may be a naive thing to say, but open source models are open to inspection anyway. So it's the commercial non-open source ones, which you want, if you want to be able to regulate and inspect, then you're going to need regulatory mechanism to do that. And I would guess that other jurisdictions will adopt something very similar because firstly, it's a good idea for the world to have one set of regulations that everybody can follow rather than the whole conflicting mass, which makes everything difficult. And also because I think they're basically fairly sensible. There's probably lots of daftness in the details, but broadly speaking, the AI Act takes a risk-based approach and says, we will categorize AI systems into high, medium, and low level of risk. And if you're in a high level of risk, then you need to show due diligence. You need to show that you have done everything you possibly could to make sure that no bad outcomes follow. And if you can show that and there are bad outcomes, we might throw the book at you. If there are bad outcomes and you can't show that you did your homework and you did your due diligence, then we will come down on you like a ton of bricks and fine you a decent percentage of the company's turnover. That seems to me to be a pretty sensible approach. You can't set out in advance. We can't know in advance exactly what harms might be caused by these models. So it has to be a form of regulation which is flexible and can allow surprises to pop up in the future. Yeah, I was on an event yesterday and this kind of, there was a lawyer actually who had kind of gone through the EU and he did say, I mean, one thing that he said that you kind of reinforced was that there is some teeth to this regulation, which is really good. And he talked a little bit about GDPR. Is this in some ways, could we use that as an analogy? Because the EU really led on the whole GDPR thing and it finally made the United States aware that something needed to happen here. What concerns me about the whole GDPR thing, from a, just from a consumer standpoint, once that thing passed, like I got so many cookie acceptance pop-ups that we couldn't count the trillions and trillions of pop-ups people needed to click on. So are these regulations here just going to essentially be 
to the Georgian consumer, something that is just more of an annoyance than anything. So yeah, GDPR does have a reputation for being just a, a device for creating pop-ups. And one, one of the things that always amazes me about it is that some websites pop up say, accept these cookies, reject these cookies, or tailor these cookies. That seems to me to be the right approach. And because I'm ordinary, I tend to really press the don't accept. But not an awful lot of websites pop up with just the choice of accept. <laughs> Either accept <laughs> these cookies or go away. Well, that's not very helpful. But actually, the GDPR, I mean, those cookie things are ridiculous, but the legislation has done much more. Companies have been fined for allowing data breaches, allowing breaches of privacy because they weren't taking proper care of data. I think BA was fined 100 million or so. Facebook's had some big fines or Meta. And I don't know the details of those cases, whether they're reasonable or not, but there are cases being brought about privacy because of GDPR. So it isn't all just about irritating cookie the notices. <laughs> and this is my opportunity to plug episodes 139 and 140 of this podcast, because that's when I was interviewing Aristo Uk, who is a Future of Life Institute researcher in Brussels, who was instrumental in understanding the EU AI Act. I'll pivot slightly here from politics to election politics next year or this year when this episode is heard. 2024 is an election year in the United States and the conversation around AI being used for disinformation has been considerable ever since the Cambridge Analytica scandal of 2016. Scandals, Brexit and the US election. I have to say that I didn't think that disinformation generated by AI was as noticeable in the 2020 election as I thought it could have been or would have been. But of course, a lot of commentators are winding up the engines saying that next year will be some kind of apocalypse in that respect. What do you think? Asking you to go out yeah. on a bit more of a thin limb here. Well, when it comes to generation tools or generative AI around people's avatars and whatnot, and actually being able to generate people say stuff. There's a company called HeyGen that I just came across recently, and they can record three minutes or so of your face talking, and then you can actually type in textual content, and then the person will, your avatar, your face, will have hand gestures in there, the look off screen. Now, it's only about 90, I would say 92, 93%. You know, I can still pick out some little things here and there with regards to what they're doing. But that concerns me, I guess, as an educator, I was kind of thinking, well, this is kind of cool. And maybe I could just write my lesson plans, right? And students just tune in and see my face and I can go ahead and just present to them through some sort of virtual avatar. But the ability for somebody to create disinformation and then have it propagate, and especially countries that actually are against the United States, <laughs> I am concerned, yeah. And I think while maybe it maybe didn't have a huge impact in 2020, I think the world has changed considerably with regards to the economics of being able to do these things. So this company like Heja, and you can sign up for free and you can generate your stuff. And so I feel like the cost to have somebody go ahead and be able to create images, create fake textual stories, create videos, is just come down to such a level where it becomes a lot more economic for anybody to pull this off in a mass scale. So I am concerned. So next year is probably the biggest year of elections for a very long time, possibly ever. And in many ways, the most important election for a very long time, perhaps since the 1930s, is the one in America. I'm personally less worried about AI than about mainstream media in regard to those elections. 
I don't think that social media has caused the polarization, the partisanship, the populism that we're seeing today. I think it's actually mostly Rupert Murdoch and people like him. I think it's Murdoch rather than Meta. Rupert Murdoch and his papers in the UK and Fox News in America spent years lying to people. In the UK, they spent years telling everybody that the EU was the root of all evil. And when the Brexit vote came along, an awful lot of people had fallen for it because they'd been lied to for 30 years about it. And they're going to do the same in the elections next year. It is a shocking state of affairs that Americans are seriously thinking about re-electing President Trump. It's just astonishing. I think we might, the Brits might set a good example because hopefully there'll be an election before the November 24 election in America in which the Conservative Party in the UK will be utterly destroyed. They certainly deserve it. They've become a bunch of, well, I'd better not rant too much, but completely unfit for office and they're likely to get thrown out. And maybe we'll set a good example and, and America will not vote for Trump. I think the kind of deep fake, both images and videos, are less of a threat than people think in the political arena, because we, by this point, we pretty much expect that lots of images and lots of quotes are made up and are lies. And so we mostly, I think all of us, apply a healthy dose of skepticism. You know, if you see a picture of Donald Trump throwing a punch at President Biden, you probably think, well, that's been photoshopped, that's been fabricated. Where I think deepfakes will have a big impact is on all of us as individuals, because the economic cost of spammers sending us deepfake voice messages, images, and videos, it's going to be possible to have mass personalized deepfakes that target individual citizens. I think that's much more of an issue. And one thing I think we should all do is among our friends and family, agree safe words and agree safe sentences so that if you get contacted by somebody who claims to be your son, daughter, husband, wife, mother, father, saying, help, I've just had my wallet stolen, please send money to this address or whatever, to this account, you can ask them, where was it that Aunt Cedric had their honeymoon or something? And the spammer will not know the answer, the machine will not know the answer, and you'll be able to identify that it's a deep fake attack. Because spear phishing and phishing is getting more and more sophisticated. So yeah, it's a bit of an unconventional opinion, but I don't think that deep fakes are the threat to the political sphere that people think they are. I think the potential is there because I've seen instance where people like someone I know with a PhD in science was taken in by an image of a politician putting a gun in someone's mouth, which was photoshopped, because it aligned with his politics. And so these things work incrementally if they are just a little bit to the further to the left or right of wherever that person is. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And that critical thinking of is this fake gets turned off because they just don't want to engage it at that point. The possibility that this could happen, that it could be engineered deliberately in that way is certainly there. It's an, a fruit ripe for the picking for anyone that wants to take it. And it could even happen accidentally, as we've seen with the TikTok and YouTube algorithms and Facebook, which were optimized for keeping people on the platforms and had the side effect of radicalizing them in the process to whatever their tendencies were. So in other words, I don't know either. I was just going to comment real quick on Callum's thing. I can't believe that the United States is going to potentially reelect Trump. I think what happens here in the U.S. Is, is people just get in their lanes, right? So they voted for a particular party in the past, and it's really hard to move them over the line, right? And so I'm talked prior about you know all these deep fakes and stuff, and I'm concerned about those. But 
I think we're still going to have a close election no matter what, because that's just the way that the political system is broken down here. I just I know so many people that will just vote the party line and it's really hard to move them one way or the other. So we're going to have a close election just by the mere fact that we're just so divided here outside of AI, right? Hmm. Yeah, and I do think that Fox News has played an outsized role in making that yeah. happen. It normalized Trump. It said it's okay to do the things that he's done. And, but it's still shocking to me that yeah. 30 to 40% of Americans will vote for somebody who tried in a cack-handed way to mount a coup against American democracy and has made absolutely no secret of the fact that he's going to do it again. You know, he's going to break up the FBI. He's going to break up the Department of Justice. He's going to go after all the people who use the normal constitutional processes to try to put right his wrongdoing. He's going to target those people. And, you know, it's not too overdramatic to say that America could slip into fascism if mm. Trump is elected. And mm. it's just shocking that so many Americans don't want to see that, can't see it, or are comfortable with it. Yeah. And... This is part of what gives me concern for next year, although we're getting further away from the intersection of AI with that. I want to make sure that I ask about something that I'm working with at the moment that's important to me, and that's the impact of especially the large language models on education. I know a lot of teachers who are afraid for their job because they see AI being able to do essentially what they can. They haven't yet learned where to draw the line between what AI can do and what they can do that it can't. And I'm helping with that. But it, on paper, literally, there's a lot of overlap when you see AI being able to write term papers, which teachers are used to grading. And now they ask, what is the point? How do I assess my students? And when AI can teach them, what is my role? I set my 13-year-old, now 14-year-old, up with ChatGPT and said, use this as a teacher. Use it as an expert that you can access around the clock on any topic that you want to know about and have a conversation with it, especially as though you had an expert with you. It will make mistakes. So do people. The more you use it, the more you'll learn where those mistakes are, but it can accelerate your education. Now, teachers see that as a threat. I don't think that they need to, but it is certainly a wake-up call for the entire education profession, certainly from secondary level onward. What are your thoughts on how this might change? Great question. And I probably should have a better answer being an educator myself. It is one of these things where it felt like at the beginning, again, kind of going back to the beginning of the year, it was kind of this arms race, right? Even OpenAI put out a tool that was that said would help us as educators trying to figure out if you used generative AI content, and they eventually shut it down because they weren't actually able to predict with greater than 50-50 chance that something was generated by a student or not. You know, in particular for what I teach, I teach around software development, I teach hands-on with sensors. Students need to understand sort of the entire pipeline with regards to how software gets on these microcontrollers, how data gets sent over the internet. There's an entire ecosystem around this. And I'm not too concerned if a student goes out and they go ahead and can what is essentially a very, very sophisticated Google in a lot of ways. They could have Googled for all of this information and found it. What's different is, of course, they can continue a conversation, right? It's conversational. And they can start asking, well, if I were to implement this, how would you suggest that I do it? Which, at the end of the day, I think is actually very, very powerful. And I come at it more from the standpoint of, I've heard some students say, you know what? You explained it to me a certain way, but I actually asked ChatGPT and I understand it better now. 
it was almost like I'm not going to be able to understand or explain technical concepts to a student that everyone's going to get. So I'm more of the opinion of they should go ahead and use these tools. And it's kind of like use the one that fits best for you. And there's a whole human aspect to this too, maybe is what you're getting at with regards to me actually teaching in front of a class, understanding, empathizing, sympathizing for what they want to do. And I know a lot of the students, I had them write a term paper, right? Very technical term paper. I'm certain all of them went out and used ChatGPT to ask these questions. And whether or not they cut and pasted and dropped the exact same words in there or they used it as a framework to start and then edited along the way, I'm 100% fine with. I think at the end of the day, as an educator, I need to come to the table and say, I just want students to learn the best possible way that they can. I still think I have an important role in their educational experience, but we need to recognize that now there's this very, very smart tool in the room called AI that can actually do things as well as we can do, if not even better in some ways. And that's a good thing. So I kind of dodged the question a little bit, I guess. You know, am I concerned? I'm not really concerned today, but I also believe that even in the next year, it's going to be more of a, I'll put threat in quotes, but I also think that there's always going to be a human piece of this and anyone's educational journey. So there's absolutely no point educators trying to do what King Canute did not do and try to hold back the waves. There's no point educators saying, don't use these tools, they're cheating, let's hold the line and forbid their use. That's pointless because they're going to get used. And secondly, these tools are not yet anywhere near good enough to replace a human t-shirt. And it's going to be some time before they are. By some time, I mean at least a few months, but probably a few years. So people shouldn't feel threatened. And most educational environments, there's a woeful shortage of teachers in schools in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in states in most schools there's 20 to 30 kids for one teacher that's a horrible ratio a much better ratio is one to one or one to two now with generative ai you can get close to having one-to-one mentoring relationships which is terribly helpful and the teachers play an extraordinarily valuable role in getting the students to get the best out of the generative ai as a tool it's a bit like when spreadsheets arrived and people didn't use to have to use slide rules or just their fingers anymore to add up with. They had this excellent tool and people got trained how to do much more useful things with math than they previously could do. Students will now be able to do much more useful things with language. There'll be no excuse in the future for producing a letter or an exam paper which is illiterate because you've got this tool to help you. And enlightened, sensible educators are saying to students, use the tool and produce really excellent work And we'll know, you know, whether you've just done it in a right way, because when we talk to you, you'll either be saying the same sort of things you said in your paper, or you'll have no clue what's in your paper because you delegated the whole thing to a machine. So I think certainly for a number of years, teachers don't need to feel threatened. And these are very valuable tools. Having said that, one thing we haven't really covered at all is the longer term issues about the replacement of human small sorts of roles, including in the workplace and ultimately superintelligence. Just because we know that today these machines are nowhere near as good as humans, either at an intellectual level or in consciousness, which is a different thing, or in volition, which is a third different thing, one day they very likely will be. And one of the things that has happened this year is that people are starting to talk about those longer term issues. You know, what happens when it isn't possible for most humans to do a job because there's a machine which can do it cheaper, better and faster. It isn't going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in the next two or three years five years, probably, maybe 10, maybe not even 20. But I think at some point it will, and we should be thinking about what we do as a society, how we run our economies, how we run our societies, 
when those things do happen. And I think that's a good segue to the question of artificial general intelligence. I've heard people mention AGI, people who were not in any technical field, but now that has become part of their lexicon. That's become mm. something that's in their world. And we've seen a paper from researchers saying that GPT-4, for instance, showed signs of AGI. Of course, AGI is extremely broadly defined. And so you can put a lot of things in it that perhaps don't belong there. But the fact that people are now saying this and that they are producing studies that show things that they claim put it within the reach of AGI mean that I think we've got to look at this question of when will we get AGI or what sort of progress will be made towards something that more and more people will call AGI in the next year? Good question. Yeah, I think what's so hard about AGI is I feel like there is no one test. You know, we were talked about the Turing test, right? I mean, that goes back quite some time. And I've even like looked around like, have we cracked that? Have we solved for that or not? And other people are saying, no, we haven't beaten the Turing test. Other people are like, yeah, we destroyed that years ago, right? I feel like there is no metric specifically that everyone can agree on what AGI is. And the thinking that I could sit in front of a computer and have a conversation just like I'm having with you guys and be completely sort of fooled all the way through end to end for 56 minutes we've been talking here and have a computer do that at some point in the future, I believe can happen. I definitely believe that we will get to a point where, kind of like you were saying, it's not just a matter of when these systems are going to get so intelligent or if, it's just more of a matter of when. So I think we'll get there. I think in the next year, we're going to move the needle a little bit, but it's not going to be anything sort of like earth shattering. And I think, Peter, I think you mentioned this in your book or something that I read, but I also had seen it before. Bill Gates said something to the effect of, you know, we think that we overestimate how fast technology will move in the short term. But in the long term, we kind of underestimate it, right? So people think in the next 12 months, things are going to move very, very quickly. And it turns out they actually don't move as fast as we think. And 10 years from now, or 12 years from now, they move a heck of a lot further than we thought, right? So I think when it comes to AGI in the next year, specifically, I think we're going to see some little blips. You'll see maybe another person come out of Google saying that we have achieved sentient AI again, and there'll be a big oopla uproar about that. But at the end of the day, it won't have actually affected it. So I view in the long term, we'll get there. But in the short term, at least in the next couple of years, I don't see much progress or at least sustainable things where like, okay, we've achieved it right now. Yeah, I agree with that. AGI is a rather clunky term, artificial general intelligence. It was invented by Ben Goetzel and Shane Lake, one of the co-founders of DeepMind. And actually, it's a fairly straightforward idea if you don't try to get too clever about it. There isn't a metric for it, but what it means is a machine which has all the cognitive abilities of an adult human can do anything an adult human can do mentally. And obviously some things it will do an awful lot better, particularly math. And we don't need, I don't think, a metric or a measurement stick to say, yes, this thing has got there or no, it hasn't. We'll just kind of know it when we see it. Mm. And of course, what will happen is once it arrives, it will carry on getting better and it will probably accelerate its rate of improvement because it will start improving itself as well as us improving it. And so quite quickly, we'll have a very advanced superintelligence. And that will be the most important event in the whole of human history. That's going to be the pivot point. We will either go extinct or I think more likely experience an extraordinary flourishing. There are a lot of people who think that it automatically means we'll go extinct. When it will happen, I agree with you, it's not going to happen 
this year, next year, the year after. Elon Musk recently said he thinks it's three years away. Sam Altman has said for quite a while he thinks it'll be this decade. Musk's track record for predictions is obviously terrible. He's been predicting self-driving cars every year since 2016, and they're not here yet. Or actually, they are, but they're not widespread yet. And Sam Altman's less flippant in his predictions, and maybe he's right. You know, There's probably very few people in the world in a less good position than him to forecast it, but he still seems terribly near to me. And Amara's law, the observation that we overestimate the impact of AI in the short term and underestimate it in the long term, is very powerful. Seems to me that it's probably 15, 25, maybe more years away, but who knows? Who knows? But it is coming, and we all ought to be thinking more about what it means mm. and whether we'd like to stop it. I don't think we can, but whether we'd like to, how are we going to prepare for it? I think Stuart Russell's formulation that if an alien civilization let us know that it was coming, we wouldn't just sit around and say, oh, yeah, all right, well, we look forward to seeing you when you get it. We'd be thinking really carefully about how to survive it. Jan Talon was on the show a few episodes ago, and his idea for the limiting the development towards that is to limit the development of the largest language models right now because they can only happen in a very few data centers because of the scale. But obviously that's not going to last for long. We're talking about buying time. Just to tie a bow on this, I think that what we will see in the next year or I hope we will see in some respects and fear in others is development of agents. Because what I want more than an AI that I can have a conversation with is one that just goes and does things for me behind the scenes, manages my schedule, my calendar, answers boring emails, pays bills, whatever. And of course, that invites a what could go wrong reaction to it. But I think the demand for that is going to be such that we we'll see more and more agentic AIs and those could provide a vector eventually to the sort of AI free agent ability, loose cannon possibility that we've been talking about, perhaps fearing for so long. Again, it's going to be up to us what we make of that. Final comments, what would you like to say about the year ahead and AI? Well, you just sparked something when you mentioned agents. Yeah, I've been dealing a lot working in this open source framework called Langchain, which is really fascinating. And for any of your listeners, if I guess maybe you have to be a little bit of a tech geek to understand it, but it does actually allow you to sort of stitch together a number of different large language models and actually perform some of these actions as agents. And I'm 100% when you were saying that, I was kind of nodding my head because I was like, yeah, it's one thing to have it generate a nice poem for you. But it's another thing to actually have it, you're right, respond to these, you know, and during this meeting, I probably have received 50 emails, right? And so how could I train something to actually do something for me <laughs> behind the scenes, which is what I think we're all trying to do here in a lot of ways is free ourselves up from a lot of the mundane tasks that are happening in our world today as humans. And that's ultimately to bring it all the way back to kind of what I was talking about when I talk to businesses or I talk to individuals, how can we bring AI into your life? to make your life more impactful and improve efficiencies. So I want to spend more time with my kids. I want to spend more time with my wife. And if I could have more agents behind the scene using AI to do stuff that are, I'm literally clicking on a lot of these days, I think would be phenomenal. And I think we're going to look back, maybe not in a year, but you know, maybe in five years, we'll look back and say, wow, how did we type on keyboards? Like That's just going to feel so primitive. It's going to feel like the slide rule days because people are going to be looking at ways in which they can use voice and ways that they can use video and other ways that they can interface with computers 
to have them do things. And so I'm excited for sort of what's ahead and a lot of the efficiencies that's going to happen for all of us in our lives. Mm. I'm not going to be able to function to anything like the level that I want unless this happens. <laughs> that's why I really want it. Callum. Yeah, I certainly second that. I think a world in which AIs do a lot more talking to AIs will be a very good thing. And actually, Justin, right at the beginning, you said how interesting it was that the whole world of AI can turn on a dime when Sam Altman was fired and then got himself a job at Microsoft and then was rehired and all that within a week. One thing we can be fairly confident of is that AI will surprise us enormously next year. Maybe we'll have AIs which unquestionably reason extremely well and as well as humans can. Actually, we're not humans, not particularly good at reasoning, but maybe we'll have AIs that can definitely do that better than us. Maybe there'll be a huge debate, there's already a debate, between open source and closed source foundation models, and maybe that debate will be resolved one way or another. Maybe world models, which is something that I believe Jan Lacoon is working on and other people, which looks to train advanced AIs using videos as a way of giving them experience of the real world rather than just text. Maybe they will turn out to be incredibly important. Maybe spiking neural networks will turn out to be really important because they are much more efficient and use a lot less energy and can operate therefore a lot more quickly. There's going to be some enormous changes and we can't really see them coming, but it's certainly going to be interesting. Thank you. Well, if you could, each of you, give our listeners an idea of where to find out more about what you're doing and follow your progress and your works. Justin? Sure. Yeah, I would just say go to my full name, justingrammons.com. That's J-O-S-T-I-N-G-R-A-M-M-E-N-S.com. So you can find out about from there links off to all the organizations that I'm a part of. And I will also put in another plug here for the Applied AI group. So that's appliedai.mn. We do a fair amount of meetups in the Twin Cities that are in person, but we do a lot of virtual things as well. So would encourage you to join our community at AppliedAI.mn. I'll second that. Doing some really sterling work there. Callum? CallumChase.com. And Chase is spelt with C-H-A-C-E, not C-H-A-S-E. And the London Futurist podcast. Fantastic. Thank you, gentlemen. Happy New Year. I hope you celebrated wisely and well and look forward to experiencing a year that no matter what it brings is going to be a mix of surprise, delight and other events around artificial intelligence. Thank you, Peter. And thank you, Justin. Yes. Thank you, guys. Appreciate being here. That's the end of the panel. Exciting times ahead. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, a company in India has appointed ChatGPT as its CEO. Sure, this is a bit clickbaity, but we can indulge once in a while. Chatra Sansad, or CS India, an organization dedicated to empowering India's youth, decided to appoint ChatGPT as their CEO, according to India's News 18. The company claimed that having ChatGPT as its CEO will help the company analyze vast amounts of data and help drive the growth for the brand. Kunal Sharma, founder and CEO, presumably former founder and CEO of CS India, said, quote, ChatGPT is the perfect candidate to lead our organization in this mission, as its advanced language processing capabilities and ability to analyze vast amounts of data make it well-suited to drive our efforts to empower the youth of India through leadership and development. End quote. You may have heard me say before that AI could essentially take over the roles of the executive suite. Not completely, of course, but if you had AI performing 
significant functions of the CEO, CFO, COO, CMO, all of the other CXOs, and so forth, its ability to coordinate all of those functions on a level that requires individual humans to hold lengthy meetings to communicate with each other and get on the same page could allow an enterprise to operate at speeds many times greater than currently possible. And that alone would confer an enormous competitive advantage. It will happen sooner or later. The C-suite in a box, I'm calling it at the moment. With the humans in those roles performing the irreplaceable human contact functions and otherwise acting like centaur chess players, the ones who use AI to maximize their play. Next week, my guest will be Michal Kroszynski, Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and the researcher who first exposed the privacy risks exploited by Cambridge Analytica, which were published in a 2015 article in The Guardian. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.